Last week we dealt together with Psalm 9. Today we're going to read Psalm 10 together. We didn't really deal with Psalm 9. There's still so much more that could have been said about it. But today we take Psalm 10 because these two psalms belong together. They're um, actually a, a kind of an acrostic. Um, it's a loose acrostic. Every few verses you get an, a, a, another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Some, some letters are missing here and there. But it is clear that 9 and 10 belong together, and they're actually very different psalms, which is really interesting. We'll talk about that a bit this morning. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And our focus this morning will be verse 14. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you agree that there are a lot of things in life that don't make sense? Some things don't make sense because you don't have enough information. Other things don't make sense because it was never explained to you properly, like math or English may have been to some of you at school. And then there are things that, that don't make sense because it seems to be a contradiction. And those are the hardest of all. You can have two things that you know are both true, but they seem to contradict each other. You have no way of resolving that contradiction. And Psalm 10 deals with that apparent contradiction. On the one hand, it's clear that God is faithful from all of Scripture, also from the psalm. But on the other hand, God doesn't seem to sometimes answer the prayers of people who call on Him. How do you make sense out of that? What do you do when what you believe and what you experience seem to contradict each other? Maybe for a long time. Well, that would be discouraging. And King David, who wrote this psalm, feels discouraged, very discouraged. And he voices his discouragement in this psalm. Psalm 10 has a very different tone from Psalm 9. You remember that Psalm 9 was this exuberant celebration of the presence of God. Psalm 10 is quite different in that way. But they were both, as I indicated earlier, part of the same structure. And that's good to remember. A lot of the Psalms, including this one, are prayers. And prayer is big enough that it has room for thanksgiving and lamentation, sometimes in the same psalm, in the same prayer. We should not hide from lamentation. Romans 12 verse 15 calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. But we're not always good at that, are we? Mourning is not something that we're really comfortable with. Also, in our free Reformed circles, there can be a lot of pressure to maintain appearances, to, to give this impression of perfection to the church members around us. There's a lot of pressure to look like you have it all together. Your house, your children, your work, your marriage, your body. There's a lot of pressure on us and among us to, to really make it look like we have it together. Everything has to look perfect. Except that sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we manage to maintain these appearances for a while, or we make it look like if there are any struggles, well, they're very small ones. We have it under control. God will help us through it. And we're not willing to admit that things are not actually going that well. We're struggling. Because what Scripture says and what we experience seem to be two different things, and we cannot reconcile them. 
How do you do that? How do you make that work? How do you hold it together? Well, David prays. He's very discouraged. He realizes that there's no point in pretending that he isn't. So he brings this discouragement before the Lord, and so may we. Our, the, the, the Psalms, a lot, when you look at the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, a lot of them clearly were meant to be prayed. They're really prayers, not just songs, but also prayers. Sometimes they're both at the same time. And the Psalms were given to us to help us shape our prayers. And it is in prayer that David, King David, begins to become aware again that God does see. King David was struggling with the evidence, but in prayer he came to realize again that God does see. And that's how we're going to approach our text this morning as well, with that single truth. God does see, which drives the psalm. And because God sees, the frustrated can pray to Him. Because God sees, the helpless can commit themselves to Him. So think about frustration. There are two different frustrations that come through in this psalm. The first frustration is because God does not seem to see the wicked, or God does not seem to see the wicked, and the other frustration is that he does not seem to see those who suffer. This psalm then initially begins with showing us that wickedness. It's giving us a careful look at how thoroughly wicked this man is. And look, look, let's look at this together. It begins with his mind. Initially at the beginning there's this opening statement. Um, stating the basic problem, God, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? Look at this wicked person in arrogance. The wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. And then the rest of the psalm unfolds that. And then, and then um, it begins in verses 3 and 4 by telling us the, the thoughts of this wicked person. Verse 4 gives us insight into his mind. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, if you're following along with the New King James Version this morning, you might have noticed that it says something quite different. It says, God is in none of his thoughts. That's a little bit different, isn't it? To say that all his thoughts are, there is no God, which seems to be an active thing. He's deliberately saying to himself, there is no God, whereas the New King James rendition says God is simply not in his thoughts at all. It's really a question of translation. The difference is not as big as it seems. Um, in defense of the ESV, you can point to other verses later on where, where God is in his thoughts. And he does, the wicked man uh, does seem to come back to that. But in any case, in both, in both translations, he doesn't take God's presence seriously. Verses 11 and 13, that's reflected as well. He lives as if God is irrelevant to him. And that's really what it comes down to, regardless of the translation. He lives as if God is irrelevant to him, and that makes him a really dangerous person. There are people who say, there is no God, but I'm going to do my best to live a decent life anyway. 
This man says, even if there was a God, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, those are two different forms of atheism in a sense. And the second kind is far more dangerous. In other words, God, he says, does not see. They're both wrong, of course, but, but the second one has practical implications. And the psalm takes, that, takes us from the wicked person's thoughts to his words. Unsurprisingly, his mouth is full of verbal abuse. Verse 7 says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. What does that sound like? It sounds, for example, like an abusive husband screaming at his wife. Cursing, deceit, and oppression. No wife ever deserves that kind of treatment for any reason. And simply submitting to it will not change anything in the long term because, as the psalm clearly indicates, the issue is with the wicked man's heart. Fundamentally, the issue is not with her. The reason why he carries on like this is not because of his wife. It's because he thinks that God does not actually see. So one of the things that we learned from this psalm already in the very beginning is that true wickedness can never be contained. It corrupts his thoughts, his words, and eventually his deeds as well. And we compartmentalize these things, right? For example, some men might think it's okay to scream at their wives or to threaten them as long as they don't hit them. And they might say, I've never touched her. But it's all part of the same wickedness. And this psalm solemnly warns us that wickedness cannot be contained. It takes on a life of its own. It, it corrupts us. And that's one of the terrifying things about hell is that people are handed over to that corruption with no breaks anymore. Wickedness cannot be contained so verses 8 through 10 shows us the destructive effect of this behavior on, on those around him. He prays on the, the innocent, verse 8, who did nothing to deserve it. He seizes the poor, verse 9. He takes advantage of the helpless. And he's a real bully. He only goes for people who cannot or will not retaliate. So... He's not only wicked, he's also a coward. And those two things often go together, don't they? And the really frustrating part, the big problem in this psalm is he seems to get away with it. His ways prosper at all times, said verse 5. He's doing fine. There's nothing wrong with him. He's wealthy and untouchable. As for all his foes, he puffs at them, it says. And to puff at someone, you know, like this, this dismissive gesture, the New King James translates it as he sneers at them. And, and that, not, not really literal, but it captures the emotion behind it. He sneers at the people around him who you can maybe even imagine office bearers who came and tried to talk to him. And worst of all, he sneers at God. In verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. This man is wicked, he knows that he's wicked, he enjoys his wickedness, and he's getting away with it, day after day. It seems as if God is simply ignoring it. It's almost as if when you get to the really difficult things in life, faith makes no difference anymore. 
And you see that even reflected in the parallel between the words of David and the words of this wicked man. Essentially, both are saying the same thing. Look back at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then look at verse 11. God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. So, at face value, when the wicked man and the righteous man look at the world, they seem to see the same thing. That's disconcerting, isn't it? That, doesn't that frighten you a little bit? It should. The sense that it's something we've probably all, all encountered at different times. The fear that, that maybe, maybe when, when things really become difficult, then maybe, maybe faith doesn't have much to say. That's the, the fear maybe that we harbor sometimes. But here's the difference between these very similar statements. The difference is in the attitude behind it. David is speaking to God out of his faith. The wicked man is speaking to God, or about God, we should say, out of his pride and unbelief. So those, those are two fundamentally different ways of approaching the problem presented by this perceived absence of God. Either you speak to God, or you speak about God. And that's really the, the difference between faith and unbelief. They both live in God's world. Faith speaks to God, unbelief speaks about God. And that's really how, how we find our way through the psalm. Once you realize that, David speaks to God. He addresses God by his covenant name, verse 1. Why, O Lord, you see the small caps, why, O Yahweh, covenant God, why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? He speaks out of a faith that is shaped by God's covenantal actions in the past. He knows that God has acted on behalf of his people in the past. But that's exactly what makes his current situation so difficult because he's one of God's people. And as we've seen, his first great frustration is that God does not seem to see the wicked. The wicked person is getting away with all of this. The second great frustration is that God does not seem to see those who suffer. Look at verse 14 now. Now we're getting really into the nuts and bolts of our text. It says, but you do see, for you know mischief and vexation. Now you might be puzzled by that word mischief. We don't normally use the word mischief in that way. But it's actually, normally when we use the word mischief, we, we think of it as playful Playful misbehavior or troublemaking is the official dictionary definition. Mischief, playful misbehavior or troublemaking. Sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? But there's also a second dictionary definition. Harm or trouble caused by someone or something. And when the ESV uses, translates it as that word, that's the meaning that, it, that it, it's going for. That's an accurate reflection of what the, the Hebrew language says here. Mischief. You do see, for you know, mischief and vexation. Not playful misbehavior, but harm or trouble caused by someone or something. See, the, the word mischief here carries the freight of fatigue, of being tired. 
You could say that this mischief is a sense of weariness that you get when you have to constantly deal with a fallout of someone else's bad decisions. It's in your face and you have no way of getting away from it. The wicked person constantly deals with, engages in behavior that troubles others and those others eventually become discouraged. They run out of spiritual and emotional energy. They constantly have to put up with this mischief. They constantly have to put up with the weariness that comes from having someone else's sins affect your life. That is mischief. And our text also uses the word vexation. Verse 14, you do see for you note mischief and vexation. What is vexation? It's not really a common word, is it? Um, Vexation is a sense of agitation that you get when you work yourself up over something. You know, when you become angry, your face becomes hot. You ever felt that before? And when you cry, you get the same thing. You get all hot and flustered. Now imagine being in that, that state of mind without being able to do anything to change your situation. That's what our text means when it refers to vexation. Vexation is the grief, the displeasure that comes from being worked up over a situation which you cannot change. It's actually very emotive language. These two words perfectly describe the state of mind of someone who has nowhere else to go. Mischief and vexation. And you might, th- you might think when you experience this that no one knows, no one even cares. But, says David in his prayer to God, he says, you know. You care. You do see. You do see. For you know mischief and vexation. Now, of course, this could lead us to ask a very reasonable question. If God does see, why doesn't he do anything about it? Or, to put more of a point on it, if God really loves me, if he's my covenant God, why are these things happening to me? How can he let these things happen? It's interesting, by the way, that David does not ask that question. He, nowhere in the Bible will you find him starting a question with, if God really loves me. Why not? Because it's the wrong question to ask. If you're asking this question, you're setting the conditions for God's love. You're saying, I'm going to tell God that I don't believe he loves me unless he does exactly what I tell him to. For those of you who are parents, imagine for a moment if your child said this to you. Imagine that you're going through the grocery store, you're, you're let's say, um, two-year-old, maybe three-year-old, grabs a pack of cookies off of the shelf as you go by in your trolley and refuses to put them back. You tell her to put it back and she starts to scream and she says, you don't love me, you hate me, right in the middle of the store. And so what do you do? Well, there's many different ways to handle that situation, but one, one way is to give in. And at that point, who's in charge? Well, the child is. Now, you might think to yourself, well, these two are not the same at all. There's a big difference between a child carrying on in a store and a believer dealing with genuine trouble in life. Well, yeah, uh, there is a difference. It's a difference of scale. But remember, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, says Proverbs. And so, it's the same issues, just on a smaller scale. 
The principles are the same. It's not for us as God's children to dictate the conditions of his love. In fact, if we want him to do what we tell him to do, we are no different from an idolater. Did you know that? Idolatry is all about control, remember? We've talked about that often in the context of the first commandment. Idolatry is about control. Well, in the context of the second commandment as well, idolatry is about control. Having an image and manipulating it is a form of control or trying to have control. Sometimes Christians can live that way as well. We think if we do exactly what God tells us to do, then we can control the things that happen to us. But it doesn't work that way. It is, it is true, of course, that there are blessings that come with living and obeying God. But we don't do that in order to control our circumstances. That's not how the covenant God relates to his people. And yet sometimes we fall into that trap. One of the symptoms of idolatry is bitterness when things do go wrong. Bitterness says if God is really good, he would have done things quite differently. But at its core, bitterness is not really that different to unbelief. Because then you're calling the character of God into question. Then you're not that different from the wicked person that our psalm describes because he is also calling the character of God into question. The reality is that God does see. But you do see, says our text. And seeing here is not to be understood as a disinterested contemplation, the way that a herpetologist might look at a snake or an entomologist at an insect. You don't look at those things. That's not the same sort of, that's not the same sort of seeing to, to say an insect or a snake as, uh, as the way that you look at a child or someone whom you love. Those two kinds of seeing are not the same. So see in our text here refers to a sympathetic gaze. The kind of seeing we find back in the well-known story of the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. Remember the Lord spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, and what does he say in verse 7? He says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen, same word, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So the seeing is not a detached, remote contemplation of the situation. This, is, this kind of seeing is tied to acting. God acts in accordance with his covenant promise. And what is his promise? Fundamentally, his promise is that he is there for his people. That's his promise, that he is there for his people. And that kind of promise is much greater than what could be contained in our ideas of what God should or should not do. In fact, if you think about it, by nature, we don't deserve to have God see us at all. In Romans 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul quotes from this very psalm. Not to say that, you know, here's the wicked and here's us. No, he quotes from this psalm to make the point that all of us by nature are sinners. And a few verses later in Romans 3, verse 23, he goes on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all twisted by sin. We're just twisted in different ways. 
And it's hard to accept that when we're so focused on what others are doing to us, but it is true. And if you want evidence, the evidence is that we don't always handle our suffering well. Learning how to deal with adversity is a process. Learning how to deal with it in faith is a process. Learning going through suffering can often bring sinful thoughts or attitudes to the surface that we had no idea were there. An interesting characteristic of the time that we live in is that most unbelievers think that suffering produces or is a form of virtue. You have two classes, right? The oppressor and the oppressed. And if you are among the oppressed, then there's nothing wrong that can be said about you. If you are the oppressor, there's nothing right that can be said about you. And if you want evidence for that, read the news. Look at the things that are playing out in society in relation to this war between Israel and Hamas, the Palestinian leadership. Look at the way that people talk about these two groups and who gets cast in the role of oppressor and oppressed and how one group then can never seem to do wrong and the other one can never seem to do right. It's a very two-dimensional view of things. Scripture says, no, in the words of the canons of Dort, we all share in a common misery. And when we individually go through suffering, it can bring things to the surface that we didn't know were there, things that are actually sinful. And that's what makes our text even more remarkable. When you, when you look at it from that perspective, God does see. He sees us in our suffering. He sees with love. He sees with compassion. How do you know? Because he proved it in the life of Christ. You see, for you know mischief and vexation. Christ made our mischief and our vexation his own. He made it his own. He took on a human nature so that he could experience these things himself. He experienced all of the oppression that we have experienced. And so when this psalm speaks about mischief and vexation, this is his mischief and vexation, that he is suffering. It's, it's his suffering. The suffering inflicted by others, the suffering that culminated on the cross when he suffered and died, Christ suffered the same sufferings that his people did. But his suffering had a purpose. His suffering was redemptive. And we know this or should know this better even than David did himself. David already knew the redemption of God. He'd experienced it in many ways himself in his life. He knew from experience it is impossible for God not to see. It is impossible for God not to act. So he pointed, David pointed the way to salvation, but he could only point to Christ. We're looking back. We know that Christ came. We have the irrefutable evidence in the Scriptures. And we know that if anyone had a right to pray the words of the psalm, it was Christ himself. Think about Christ saying these words. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And those who mocked him as he was dying on the cross essentially asked the same questions. We read in Matthew 27, verse 43, that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Or in the words of verse 11, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. And 
it seemed as if God had hidden his face. Jesus called out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forgotten me? And for a while, God did turn his face away from him. As regards his human nature, he did stand far away, so to speak. But it was not so that evil could triumph. It was so that wickedness could be defeated in the most fundamental way possible, so that the burden of wickedness could be borne, wickedness in which we share, the wickedness of our sins, the wickedness of all of God's people. Christ atoned for that wickedness. Christ bore the punishment for their sins. Christ shared in the pain of his people all who have ever been sinned against, his people. Christ knows at the exact moment when everyone else thought that God was furthest away, he was in, the fact, in fact right in the middle of things. Psalm 10 asks the question, is God there for me or is he not? And David says, yes, he is, but you will not always see it. And that's a test. It's a test of faith. Faith by its very nature needs to be tested to see whether or not it is real. Lots of people who say that the Christians don't actually believe in Jesus. Sometimes you find such people in the church even. They believe in the things that Christ stands for. They believe in Christian principles such as love and compassion. But they don't actually believe in Jesus Christ. And here in prayer is where you begin to see that difference because when life becomes difficult, these people find out they cannot pray to their principles. True faith carries on beyond that. True faith means that you hang on to a point where beyond a point where it still makes sense to outsiders. Remember Job. Remember what he said to his wife, uh, what, what his wife said to him. She says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he didn't do that because he wanted a deeper understanding of God through his trial. And he did in the end obtain that understanding. So how do we respond in the present? Well, Psalm 10 brings home the, the tension of waiting for God to do something. It is true that God will one day bring justice on all the earth. One day Christ will return. We have that promise. But what do we do before then? What is the appropriate response in the present? Psalm 10 teaches us that we may pour out our frustration to God. God loves us in our creatureliness. God loves us in our humanity. God loves us with our limitations. Christ shared in these limitations. He shared in that human nature. And so he conclusively proved that God loves us. With all of our frustrations, we can bring it all to God. Is it not amazing that this God, this Creator and Lord, has compassion on us? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and none of this resonates with you. Your faith is so weak that it almost feels non-existent. But bringing that to God is in and of itself a professional faith. You can pray to him. You can call out to him. You can thank him for having dealt with 
the root of the problem, human sin through Christ. You might not always feel it, but don't wait till you feel everything before you pray. You're not praying to your feelings. You're looking outside of yourself, and it's not insincere or hypocritical to pray when your faith feels weak. It is, in fact, an act of profession, of, of strength in and of itself to pray anyway. And look, sometimes we just need to be patient when we look at our life. John Calvin says in his commentary on this psalm, he says, give the providence of God time to manifest itself. That's actually very true. The Lord doesn't work in the, the, the heat of the moment like we sometimes want Him to. His scale is much longer. God's judgment takes time to work itself out in this world. Evil is its own reward, and God's judgment might be out of sight, as verse 5 puts it, but it is coming. Give it time. God sees, and because God sees, the frustrated can pray to Him. Because God sees, the helpless can entrust themselves to Him as well. And we'll pay attention to that next. Our text, looking again at verse 14, we move on through it. To you, the, the helpless commits himself the helpless person is someone who, who really is limited in a lot of ways and, and has no one else to go to. When you have no other place to go, you, you realize how dependent you really are on God. Ultimately, there's no one else to whom you can fully entrust yourself. There's no one else who is unconditionally reliable. Everything else comes with terms and limitations. You cannot, for example, depend on the nations even. You think about that. Verse 16, the nations perish from his land. And the nations here are all those who are not God's people. They will perish from the land. That is to say, they are here for a while, but not forever. The meek shall inherit the earth. And that means you cannot entrust yourself to the nations. You cannot rely on their strength. You cannot hold on to what they stand for. In the past, God's people often traded with the nations and sometimes depended on them for war, for help in war. But every time that they look to the nations for those things that they should have only ever expected from God, God rebukes them. And that's important for us to remember in a time when people look more and more to their government or to various transnational agreements like AUKUS, for example, for their ultimate well-being. Look, these things have their place. And the Lord does often use means to save us. And we can think more, more locally, for example, of, of our excellent police force and our court system, which, you know, has its flaws, but in general, the rule of law is upheld. And we have a good health care system. Maybe you don't think it's great, but um, try health care in a place like Kazakhstan, for example, or even Indonesia. You know, the, the health care is not always there in the more remote areas. We have a good health care system. We have a lot to be grateful for. And in His providence, God can sometimes work through these agents and often does to bring about our physical well-being, our, our physical salvation, so to speak, in the sense of caring for the body. We should be grateful for that. But we should not look to any one of these things for our ultimate well-being. We should never expect from them what we should only expect from God or look at them and not see the work of God behind it. 
To you, the helpless commits himself, says our text. To commit yourself to God means that you leave yourself in his hands. Christ did this as well. As he was dying on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He spoke those words because he believed. He believed that God would vindicate him. He believed that God would clear him of all blame. That's what vindication means. It means that that God clears you of all blame. Death is a punishment for sin. Jesus never sinned in his life. There was never a thought that was out of place, never a word that was unconsidered, never a deed that was displeasing. He never sinned. And so when he died, willingly, bearing our sins, he believed that God would be faithful to him. He believed that God would clear him of all blame. He believed that he could entrust himself to God and God would raise him from the dead because God ultimately is righteous. And God did. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, he says, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will bring us into his presence. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins, if that belief shows itself in a life which is being renewed, then you are one of God's people and God will always do what is right for his people. Yes, he will bide his time and we don't always see justice in this life even Often we do, but not always. But one day, the whole world will see what believers already know through faith. One day, the faith of God's people will be fully vindicated. One day, God will arise, and He will lift up His hand, and the helpless will see that He was their helper all along, and the fatherless will know that God is their Father. Not so for the wicked, who are living on borrowed strength and borrowed time who have believed all their life that God does not see, does not care, will not call them to account. They will face God's justice. And there is no safe place in all this universe where they can hide. The wickedness of the wicked man will be called to account. In Amos 9, the Lord says, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, the grave, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. God does see. At the end of this prayer, David's circumstances have not changed, but his confidence has. He feels reassured now. God does see. And because God sees, a frustrator can pray to him. Because God sees, the helpless can entrust themselves to him. He actually listens to us. He actually sees us. He actually loves us. So pray, brothers and sisters, real prayer. Not this confused mumble of half thoughts, half words, half train of stream of consciousness that sometimes happens in our heads. But actual prayer. Prayer fully confident that God hears Prayer, knowing that God sees. Prayer, knowing that He regards you with profound love in Jesus Christ. And the Lord hears that prayer.
Amen.